This is the Institute for Music Leadership. Can y'all hear me okay? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm going through it right. Delaney, uh, ne- next time we collaborate, one of the things we need to talk about is the maintenance of all of the hardware and software required to create this sort of content, because I'm going through it right now with my focus <laughs> right. I f- I feel like- hey, everyone. This is Stephen Bigner. And for this episode of Create, Inspire, Lead, I'm actually recording this on my phone, um, hence the lower quality. I'm I'm dealing with a family thing back home, and I totally didn't pack my microphone, so here we are. So I've been working on this episode for a while, um, listening to the tape, reading over the transcript, um, and anything that I was thinking of doing, I just sort of decided to abandon. This episode is an interview that's hosted by Delaney Harris. Um, She's the co-host and co-founder of the Classically Black podcast. Um, We actually have an episode with Delaney and Katie uh, talking all about their podcast, which I highly recommend. And she interviewed Garrett McQueen, who is just incredible. Um, He hosts the podcast Triloquy. He's a bassoonist and a big advocate for black music and composers. And he does so many other things uh, as well. And so normally I go through and piece together a story for the interviews we do on this show. And I narrate and interrupt and interject. And the more I listened to this conversation, the more I thought that my usual approach wasn't really helping in any way. The conversation that Delaney and Garrett have, uh, I think, works best when it's unfiltered and um, absent of any little interjections that I could make. Um, There is a conversation that the three of us have after Delaney wraps up her interview, and I think that I could use some of that material to make a more quote-unquote traditional episode um, for this podcast anyway. But... I think the best thing to do for this interview is to just play it um, and just hear what Delaney and Garrett have to say. So without any more from me, here is the uninterrupted interview between Delaney Harris and Garrett McQueen. All right. Hey, y'all. My name is Delaney Harris. Um, I'm currently a student at Eastman in my last semester and um, studying double bass performance. Um, I also do podcasting. I'm the co-host of Classically Black Podcast, where we talk um, about classical music, Black culture, and the intersection of the two of them. So I'm happy to be guest hosting this episode of the uh, IML Podcast. With me, I have a very special guest, Mr. Garrett McQueen. Um, And I will let Garrett tell us a little bit about himself and uh, his musical journey. Yes. Well, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to collaborate with you. You know, I'll start by just telling a quick story. When I was in, I guess when I was in the seventh grade, there was a senior, a 12th grader at the school whose name uh, is Thaddeus Crutcher, and he played bassoon. And he got into the Eastman School of Music. And, you know, the big deal that they made out of that, you know, really introduced me to uh, the world of the arts in in an interesting way, because the Eastman School of Music was put up on 
this pedestal as one of these impossible places to, you know, get into. And, and while, you know, I've, I've gone through uh, to and through the uh, profession uh, of orchestral performance, I still think of the Eastman School of Music as, you know, one of those really important institutions when it comes to um, everything that's going on uh, in this so-called classical music. So uh, my just just my way of uh, just saying, you know, I'm, I'm always honored to uh, work with lots of institutions and uh, being able to collaborate on this podcast is uh, really an honor for me. So, um, yes, for, for folks who don't know who I am, my name is Garrett McQueen. Uh, I am um, a, a content creator. Um, I'm a, an arts consultant. Um, I'm a podcaster. I have a show called uh, Triloquy that uh, comes out uh, every Wednesday, uh, a show that really challenges what it means to have a discussion on classical music or so-called classical music, um, as I say, and what it looks like when uh, those conversations meet conversations from outside of the concert hall, as we say. So it's a lot of of, uh, orchestral stuff, lots of hip hop um, and everything in between. So, um, yeah, that's sort of my uh, main gig. And uh, my other uh, projects include, um, you know, hosting um, different panels and discussions for institutions. Uh, recently did one for the National Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, I've worked with the uh, the Kennedy Center, um, the Gateways Music Festival, uh, the Sphinx Organization, and uh, and many other institutions. Um, I uh, host and create content for uh, radio stations. Uh, one of the things I'm doing right now, um, I'm in the middle of a series in collaboration with KVNO FM out of Omaha, Nebraska, a show at the intersection of the 13th Amendment and classical music. So, you know, just a little things like that and um, you know when I'm not busy uh, doing all of those other things and answering the emails that um, uh, uh, that that come with uh, that sort of work um, I'm just here uh, playing my uh, bassoon you know uh, keeping up my musicianship and really doing everything I can to make sure that this art form that we all fell in love with can uh, survive and can continue to be relevant in this uh, ever-changing world. Yeah, I mean, Garrett is the epitome of booked and busy. I was just like, every time I wake up, it's like, Garrett doing something else. I was like, you know what? And, see, and, I, don't, and I don't even post everything because I don't try to be bragging like that. See? <laughs> no, but I'm very, I'm very, very, very grateful uh, for the work. You know, anyone who doesn't know me and, and Googles my name, you know, there won't be um, uh, too many links uh that will come before, you know, a, a big story about uh, my, my termination from a, a big organization. So, you know, we often think about how scary it is, especially this year to, you know, be without that nine to five or that orchestra job or that whatever. But, you know, um, these past few months for me have just been a testament to how dynamic um, classically trained musicians can be, um, the opportunities that are there and, um, and, and how, you know, we can use those opportunities, use, uh, the unique nature of, uh, working, uh, on your own and really being dedicated to this work, you know, how that can have a really heavy impact. So as, as, uh, as much as I'm fiery and, um, always down to challenge the status quo, I'm equally thankful and grateful for, you know, everyone, um, and every institution that is really engaged in this conversation um, and helping me and folks like me uh, continue uh, our careers at this intersection of activism and uh, racial justice and classical music. All right, so I wanna um, first introduce uh, a, a project that's been going on at Eastman uh, for the past couple of months, because I think it's uh, pretty relevant to what's been going on in I mean, across every field, really, but, you know, in the, the classical music, you know, 
quote unquote, mm-hmm. uh, field and, and in the arts field in general. So um, in June, Eastman announced the formation of the Eastman Action Commission for Racial Justice. And it's um, essentially a, a commission of 20 people um, across the Eastman community. There were a few students, myself included, um, some staff, some faculty, uh, some alumni, and some community partners from around Eastman um, who kind of came together um, to form this commission that was split into work groups to kind of address different uh, facets of, um, I guess, the work that needs to be done by Eastman and kind of put together a report that would give, uh, first of all, some background on like what has been going on at Eastman, Mm -hmm. because obviously, you know, nothing like this had ever been done before and Eastman is coming up on its centennial next year. And um, and then also give some recommendations for how uh, Eastman might move forward. So a lot of um, institutions, arts institutions, have been coming out with initiatives like this uh, this year. These these diversity committees, these diversity like executive positions, um, you know, whatever that that may look like. Um, so as someone who's been deeply involved in the work over time, can you tell me a little bit about what your reaction was to this a couple of months ago when it was just sort of this this boom of, of DEI work? Yeah, so I, I began uh, by, you know, praising Eastman. And now, you know, you talk about 100 years of the institution. So that means 99 of the years none of this mattered, you know, 99 of the years, as far as, you know, y'all were concerned, black musicians, black composers, black history in classical music did not exist. And and, and maybe I shouldn't go that far, but, you know, I, I think just looking at that you know, fact is uh, a testament to the frustration of so many black folks, you know, for this reality that we've lived under, you know, the very uh, specifically challenging reality at the intersection of being black and classical music. This has always uh, been our experience and, you know, to to varying degrees and um, in different ways, depending on the individual's um, journey. But, you know, those experiences are there. So for this to all of a sudden, for someone to have to lose their life, you you know, not far from where I'm sitting right now, actually, for someone to have to lose their life for these uh, conversations to uh, really uh, take a front seat and, and for action behind those conversations to to, uh, uh, to 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 begin to happen, you know, after all of this time is frustrating. So, yeah, I definitely feel um, that frustration. But more than I feel the frustration, I feel the unique opportunity that we have to really push and to really not be shy in this time. You know, we uh, I, there are many folks who have told me, you know, um, who are older than me that talk about not seeing this much energy, this much movement since the uh, second civil rights movement back in the 60s. So, you know, we're we're in a time in history when um, things are being written down. People are listening. There are um, people are experimenting with what it means to look at things uh, from a new uh, from a new perspective from a renewed uh, perspective I should say so yeah uh, the frustration is there but more than I feel that frustration I feel the obligation and the urgency to really do everything I can in this unique moment
moment before the the opportunity passes away. You know, back in May of, of this year, 2020, uh, the conversations were really heightened. I think we've all seen it sort of fade away slowly over those mm-hmm. past seven or eight months. So um, the the time is running out. We don't have a lot of time. Um, and, and that really pushes uh, my everyday work, you know, my all day, everyday work um, in in this uh, in, in this field. Yeah, and that's, you know, totally in line with something I was thinking about when this all um, started happening because people were like, wow, you know, this this murder had to occur. And, and it had, it got me thinking about like, what was different, you know, this time? Because also it's like, this is not the first time and won't be the last time we've watched somebody, you know, die. Well, it'll be the last time I will because you know Mm. i'm not you know searching that up anymore frankly but um that we watched somebody uh die on on tape in something that was completely unavoidable and i feel like that there was this time around there was this kind of shift in the culture that just did not allow people to remain silent in without without you know being culpable for for what's going on you know i just feel like there's there's been this this sort of this shift and I know some people have said maybe it tightened because of the pandemic and you know we're all at home and mm-hmm. it's very much like inescapable but um yeah I, I know that there's been some some varied reactions you know and and I always have mixed emotions about about things like this about like when these committees are put together because like on on some hand I mean on on in some cases rather there are you know these jobs being put in place someone that's going to be a permanent part of the the institution not to say that they're going to be a permanent part of Eastman but um more importantly these are people with salaries and benefits and um that's something that was was lacking in this situation that really Mm -hmm. had me conflicted about whether or not to participate, you know, to, to be frank. And I'm just wondering um, what your thoughts are on that, because, you know, part of part of the work and part of, um, of being equitable is uh, realizing the emotional labor and the, the effort that goes into um, combating these issues, especially for black people and recognizing that and, you know, being, equitable in that you are like compensating them or you are uh are in some way i guess supporting them in the in the work and in the um you know in in this entire in this huge like endeavor that they're that they're partaking in that is mm-hmm. so clearly you know more laborious than than for anyone else yeah i mean you know to, to, if I can speak to one of the things you said, how, you know, it was something, all of the events of this year were things that folks could not ignore. It, I, I remember the um, the first um, opus of my podcast that uh, me and shout out to Scott Blankenship, that me and Scott recorded uh, after uh, the big uprisings here in the Twin Cities. Uh, we talked about um, a piece by Aaron Copeland called Our Town. So when we think about America and the American dream and all of those sorts of things, you know, um, you know, there's often the, uh, the image of this neighborhood with the white picket fences and everything's perfect. Well, as we saw this year, you know, those white picket fence neighborhoods, 
you know, were at the center in, in, in many cases at the center of those uprisings and those protests, you know, those those pristine places that are off separate, you know, now they don't have a choice but to be involved in the conversation because it's right at your doorstep. I think, you know, that um, that applies to, to classical music in a big way because um, it has inspired many of us to talk about um, our different experiences. You know, right now I'm thinking about um, one of the, uh, uh, I guess it was the last, I'm so my, my, my timeline is so weird on when I listen to my shows and things. So I don't remember if it was the last episode of Classically Black or before that, talking about hair, black hair, you know. Um, that is a conversation that so many people just would never even think about. You know, what are the implications of me with locks? You know, you wearing natural hair in the concert hall, the experiences therein, who has told us to cut our hair, who has said that our hair is distracting or whatever, you know, you know so, and then when you tie in, you know, with, and I, I don't want to, you know, go down the list naming, you know, these people who have lost their lives to the police, but, you know, when you think about Elijah McClain, you know, uh, a violinist, you know, that's yet another example of how this conversation has really come to the front doorstep of institutions um, and, and populaces that have always considered themselves separate from that sort of thing. So, you know, so to, to say with all of that as the frame, as, as the foundation, when you have some of these people and some of these institutions who don't have those experiences looking to, you know, build something up out of, out of nowhere and inviting us to be involved in that, you know, I think it's our responsibility um, as black folks um, to understand how we can um, push equity in the way we move with those organizations. So don't let those organizations just take advantage of your time. Don't let them pimp out the pain. Really ask yourself and ask that inv uh, that uh, institution what's in it for me. You know, and I think um, the the institutions looking to engage um, folks like us need to understand that um, you know an equitable practice is really. Um, paying, you know, for those perspectives, paying for that work in the same way that you would pay an expert um, in, in consultation to help you fix your organization in, in whichever way, you know, as black classical musicians, especially those of us who have managed to, you know, overcome the audition, the audition screen, tenure, all of those things, you know, we are experts in this very uh, unique experience that we're highlighting and trying to uh, make better for everyone else. So I think uh, one of the first steps, if not step one, is making sure that the institutions understand how valuable the content is that's being um, uh, created by these individuals, how valuable the perspective is, how valuable that time is, and what you're willing to put forward, um, you know, in, in, in receiving those things, you know, what, how, 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 how much you really value, whether it's um, money or whether it's um, highlighting a person's work or advertisement, giving them a platform. You know, I, I think um, we, we, we're really starting to see what institutions um, value when it comes to, um, to making these changes. And those institutions have to, you know, understand that the value doesn't come from anywhere. How is that value going to manifest from you? And how is that being done equitably? when you think about um, the folks that you collaborate with and ask to be on your panel or to be on your, you know, committee or, or, or whatever you're working on. So, you know, this work has been coming to the forefront for a lot of different uh, 
institutions in the field, but I want to transition to talking a little bit more specifically about conservatories mm-hmm. or, you know, music schools or, you know, schools of music as Eastman likes to call it. I, I always kind of laugh at that because Eastman, you know, prides itself on not necessarily being a conservatory. They say it's a comprehensive school of music. I say it walks like a conservatory. It talks mm-hmm. like a conservatory. It's a conservatory. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because I, just thinking back I'm like there's really not much comprehensive about you know I'm sorry I, I haven't played a, a, a black composer in my entire four years mm-hmm. except on my recital which I programmed so that doesn't count <laughs> you know but um um I want to talk a little bit about uh conservatories what do you think their role is um in this work are there aspects of that work that are unique to them as as opposed to like orchestras or operas or ballets or or other um cultural institutions like that yeah so I think there are two parts of that conversation so on one side um, and I and I had the op- I got the opportunity to say this to the president of Juilliard some years ago. One side is dispelling the idea that getting into these schools is some sort of prize or some sort of 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 accolade in itself. You know, at the beginning of this conversation, I spoke to you know how uh, folks acted when uh, Thaddeus Crutcher from Memphis got into Eastman. You know, so as a kid, for me, that was exciting. And oh, I've never heard of this school, and it's so prestigious. You know. Um, in my adult mind now, I think about, well, why don't we put these other institutions up on the same pedestal? You know, I'm not conservatory trained, you know, I went to the University of Memphis and the University of Southern California, but I still got the music education uh, that that, that I needed to be successful. So I think one of the things is that conservatories need to understand that they need to, you know, get off of the throne, get down from the pedestal and really affirm other institutions um, that are that have have uh, have produced musical talent that's gone um, in, in into this field. I think that's one thing. The other side of it, I think, um, is you know understanding and, and realizing the reality that schools like Eastman will always you know have that stature. Um, for some people, you know, th- th- there's just no dispelling that. There are going to be a lot of people who will always look up to Eastman and institutions like those as the pinnacle of uh, music education and, and preparation for the uh, orchestral field. So understanding that, I think um, the institutions have to, um, you know, not take for granted what certain things mean or the visibility, uh, how, how things read, both on the positive and the negative. If Eastman is really censuring racial equity when it comes to um, who it admits, you know, maybe that will inspire other conservatories to think about more um, equitable um, audition practices, you know, maybe um, making more uh, more regional live auditions uh, a possibility or, or, or whatever, you know, uh, they need to do, you know, and on the negative, um, if an institution like Eastman is really just ignoring what's going on in this 2020, you know, I, I'm, I'm not as up on the news as I should be, but I understand there's even some Rochester specific things that have been going on uh, this year when we talk about racial equity and police brutality. So if an institution like Eastman is ignoring that, you know, being up on that pedestal, that's something that we all see as well. So, um, yeah, just uh, it's, it's, and that's why I described it as two sides of the coin. You know, on one end, it's, you know, get off your high horse. You're, um, you can set an example by affirming the other institutions as equally viable and equally important. But then on the other hand, understanding how some people will always see you up on that pedestal 
um, be that example and understand with that visibility, people um, see your institution as what's right and wrong, what's normal practice and what's left field, you know. So institutions like Eastman can really help um, make that shift and turn certain things that are fringe right now, radical right now, into just foundational normal parts of going to a conservatory and getting a music education, that sort of music education. Yeah, and that, that you know, part about setting an example, it's crazy how when one institution does it, the others really do follow suit. Because mm -hmm. I remember when Manhattan School of Music was, I think, the first ones to, to come out with anything sort of even in this um, like realm of, of DEI earlier, uh, at least in this, in this, you know, a new set of, of uprisings this year, because mm -hmm. when they came out with the announcement that they would be programming um, at least one work by um, an African-American composer on um, every concert that they would do like for the next year or something like that's kind of when it started to act like a domino effect and it was so because because Katie and I were like um, I feel like everybody is calling their emergency meetings <laughs> you yep. know yep. this weekend after you know after that happened and after that like you just saw it you know people were just rolling out okay this is what we're doing this is what we're doing and and it's crazy to think like wow if one if if one institution had not done that, I feel like a lot of these initiatives might not have, you know, existed. And again, the big institutions, because, um, and, and I think about this, you know, more when it comes to the orchestras, you know, big orchestras versus small orchestras, but I'm sure it can apply to schools as well. The smaller institutions have really been exploring this for a while, you know, back in Oh, my goodness. Uh, maybe 2015 or 2016, you know, back when I was with the Knoxville Symphony Orchestra, we were playing Florence Price then and not just on Black History Month. You know, um, she was on um, regular subscription programs and we even put her dances in the cane breaks on the Fourth of July pops, you know, that, that you do that when we talk about. Amer so the small and, and I'm sure there are many other institutions that we just don't know about that don't have that visibility that have been doing uh, similar things. So when a school like the Manhattan School of Music, you know, a very famous um, music school, when they do something like that, um, like 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 you said, you know, the other institutions that are trying to compete, that are trying to be seen as equitable or attractive to students or, or whatever, you know, funders even, you know, they're going to do the um, the same thing. But even there, you know, I would I would look very carefully because um, if the Manhattan School of Music affirmed that every concert is going to have at least one piece of music by an African-American composer, you know, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to look at uh, in what capacity, you know, is it a symphony? Is it one of the larger pieces or is it the uh, the the little you know, gospel-y sort of encore or, mm -hmm. or introduction, is it that? And then even beyond that, you know, you said African-American, so that means I better not see any Joseph Bologna's Father de Saint-Georges, or I better not see mm -hmm. any Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, or e even any, um, um, you know, Erilyn Walwyn or any, you know, so under, you know, doing those things, you know, there's still opportunities to understand the implications of certain phrases, certain words, you know, yeah. how we are so afraid to say black, 
mm-hmm. instead of, you know, African-American and nothing against that phrase African-American. But I think when we affirm blackness, you know, we really affirm it as something global, even in classical music. That's where we that's where we pull in the Samuel Coleridge Taylors and um, Chevalier de Saint-Georges and, and, and those folks. So on top of being that example and really pushing the needle and stepping out first, you have to be open to the criticism of, of standing out first and the critique of standing out first, because that's the only way we're going to change. People want this to be a comfortable sort of process, something that feels good, something that even feels natural. Okay. And not to get, you know, on my soapbox here, I didn't come to preach to anybody, but if you go all the way back to the plantation, you know, as the, the, what's foundational to the United States. So how can racism not be natural and how can anti-racism feel natural, feel normal. That sort of work can't feel regular in this sort of environment and and, and in this uh, sort of country, certainly in classical music, you know, one of the most predominantly white institutions here in the United States. So when we when we move forward, we have to really understand that there are going to be some growing pains. There are going to be some disagreements. There are going to be some times when folks feel embarrassed or like they really tried and missed the mark or how some people might not be grateful for the little that we are doing, you know, so, you, you know, you, you really have to be open to all of, of those things. I think about, um, you know, I said stepping out first. I think about when you're playing like a quiet section um, of a piece of music, uh, an orchestral piece of music, and there's an entrance. You know, no one wants to be first, okay? Especially y'all in the strings. I'll say nobody wants to be first. But but the institutions need to have that courage to be brave enough to be first. Step out first and understand if there's critique or discomfort along the way, that means you're doing it right. Yeah, I really like that you you brought up that point about about language, um, the language that you use around um, these initiatives, because, you know, African-American and Black are, you know, they're not, they don't always overlap, you know, right, <laughs> like, right, and, right. and, you know, I feel like, Let's talk um, about all the Afro-Caribbeans that live in exactly. New York and across the, you know, here in the Twin Cities, um, folks from um, East Africa are, are very much a, um, a, a population and have a presence here. So, you know, um, understanding the nuances of that, you know, one of the equitable practices that I think a lot of the institutions are are missing is understanding how diverse black people are, how yeah. diverse our music is, you know, and we can talk about how that's integrated into music education, music history history and and all that sort of thing but yeah there's 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 something to learn and something to do at every little turn mm-hmm. yeah and, and even within within us over at classically black because you know uh katie's um katie's family immigrated here from jamaica yeah and um you know even though she grew up here there are some things of of you know i don't know where my family is from beyond you know what my living grandparents can re- mm-hmm. recount but um um there are some things that that come over from, you know, the Southern United States that she's like, hmm, I don't know, like, I didn't know that about, you know, mm-hmm. about that group of Black people and things that I've learned about, about, about Caribbean Black people. And, and so I think that's a, that's a huge, um, a huge blind spot. Um, and, and just language in general, because we also come into this conversation about um, Black versus BIPOC or, or POC right. or, you know, something like that, because, um, that goes into like, like you said, how you incorporate um, these initiatives, like 
what what are the specifics of the the we're playing the piece by a black composer or in their case an african-american composer on every program like what is that looking like because i'm i it, what that brought to mind was there's a um an organization actually that is i won't say it's affiliated with with um with Eastman and that it comes from, you know, someone who, who went to Eastman. So they are thinking about this, um, this idea of incorporating, um, I guess, you know, composers that are not traditionally in the canon. But mm -hmm. when I looked into it, I was like, see, this is why we need to really go into that next step of thinking critically about how we're doing this. Because um, it was basically, it's basically like a, a course where you learn about all these different types of like opera and things and it's like you have your week of mozart your week of um italian opera your week of verity your week of of german opera mm -hmm. of french opera and then you have bipoc composer week and i was mm -hmm. just like i was like that immediately <laughs> stuck out to me like are you kidding like you have a week that is just for mozart just him Yep. And then it's like everybody who was black. And all of us are in one little thing. And, and and that's one of the, you know, one of the spicy conversations that these institutions don't like to get into. But, you know, shout out to all of the non-black people of color and black people have specific rights and needs that have to be addressed. Um, you know, I think that um, all of these diversity um, initiatives, you know, do a really great job of, of talking about, um, you know, how 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 a uh, how, how can I say how a body of students or whatever can be, you know, more colorful. But we don't really talk about serving black people specifically. So I think that's, you know, really one of the things that we need to begin to understand, you know, as we get into, you know, step one point five, not even step two is understanding, you know, like like you said, when you put a, a, a week aside for, you know, all BIPOC composers, how are you really serving blackness? How are you serving the uh, community of people that you allege to serve, you know, based on reactions from the, the horrors of this year? So, you know, that, that's what we uh, really, really need to get more into. Uh, I, I took a look um, uh, about, probably about three weeks ago, I was going through some papers and I found um, the excerpt list that um, was sitting on the stand when I won my job with the Knoxville Symphony, you know, with the specific excerpt circled. Um, and just looking down that list and seeing all white male composers, you know, think about the orchestral excerpts that that, that we learned, you know, when is that going to look weird to someone? When is it going to look weird for an American orchestra to not affirm the people and the, uh, the musical aesthetics that built everything that is American music? So, you know, when I, and, and I, and maybe I've gone off the trail a little bit, but when we talk about really specifically um, serving and addressing racial equity from that black perspective, what we're doing is affirming what America is. So it's not as nothing against um, any other uh, community of people. But, you know, as I say all the time, with the exception of indigenous populations, you know, all everything classical and otherwise that is purely American is black, is rooted to blackness and black people, certainly on the musical front. So if an American orchestra, if an American conservatory um, alleges to celebrate 
you know, what America has contributed to, you know, the field uh, in which it's sending its students. You know, we have to have a shift in the way we look at diversity, which, you know, as I'm speaking to right now, concerns specifically celebrating black music and not just as an aside or a special thing, but something foundational to the structure um, because, you know, it's foundational to uh, America. I can get into, you know, um, you know, uh, how evolutions of the Negro spiritual um, were siphoned into certain areas because of racism. You know, that's why we don't typically consider jazz a form of classical music. You know, I, you know, every, a lot of people know the story of, of Dvorak's appreciation for what he called Negro melodies when he was here in the late 19th century. You know, we can, we can get into all of that, but at the, uh, at, at the end of the day, we have to foundationally change the way we're looking at what it means to be an American institution. And to do that, you have to foreground black music um, and the black story before all else, because it's foundational to what all of this is. Mm -hmm. And that, um, that kind of speaks to the growing pains that you were talking about, like how people want all of this to feel comfortable. And it's just like, y'all are really gonna have to <laughs> move past that. Cause and it's that's just right. And that's why we say systems change because, you know, I can hear it now. Well, a student has to learn the Mozart concerto exactly. because you need the Mozart concerto to get this job or whatever. Well, you know, we're trying to, t I, I am certainly trying to create a world where you don't need to know the Mozart concerto to get this job over knowing something else, you know, mm. so or some other sonata by a black composer or this other concerto by a woman composer whose works have, have, uh, uh, have been overshadowed. So yeah. Um, you know, those growing pains, you know, institutions understanding their role in the bigger issue, you know, your role in, you know, Eastman's role in perpetuating white supremacy in concert halls across America, you know, Eastman's role in the normalization of excerpt lists looking the way they do or concert programs looking the way they do, you know, that's the, the those growing pains have to be experienced to understand the gravity of, of, of racism in America and how it has impacted uh, so-called classical music. But you also need that to have, again, as I said earlier, that sense of urgency and understanding how this time is unique and how we can change that. You know, what the concert hall looks like 50 years from now, in many ways, I think, is dependent upon right now. Is this the time when we are going to drill in the orchestral music of William Grant Still and Florence Price and, um, and William Levi Dawson and and uh, Margaret Bonds and all these people, is this going to be the uh, the time where we drill that in so that decades later it's just normal to hear that? Or are we just going to sprinkle it across so that those sprinkles can gradually disappear over the decades as we've already seen um, happen in American classical music? I don't, I don't know if that answered your question. I don't even remember what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it was, you know, just talking about about how this sort of um, discomfort with breaking away from the canon and, and breaking away from what we have known is is something that is just gonna you know be necessary because you know to say oh well we can't sacrifice one of the one of the um, one of the weeks that we're doing the Mozart string quartets because they just must they must just must know the things that the Mozart string quartets teach you is is one thing that all of, of all of these works of black composers, not one of them can teach you 
what Mozart can teach you or it, mm-hmm. it can teach you it as well. And then also saying that these, um, these different techniques, these different musical styles and, um, and, and, you know, things that you need to develop uh, in order to play these musical styles are not as important, are not as, you know, pertinent to um, you being a musician who is, who is uh, considered qualified, who is considered capable, mm-hmm. like you are, um, are devaluing, you know, all of these other musical styles by doing so. I think that's a, a, a part of it that a lot of people don't think about. Um, is that this whole system that we have um, of like these schools of thought, these techniques, these uh, this you know system of music theory even that we have um, really is actively like trying to devalue the the st- musical styles of Black people because you know one thing that that I think classical music Twitter gets you know up in arms about or at least actually the woke side of classical music twitter gets mm-hmm. up in arms about is like these two set violin videos that'll be like making fun of rap music for example and it's like um one of the things that they will will poke fun at is that it's not oh it's not as melodically complex like they'll be like oh this is a such a simple melody in comparison to this to this beethoven symphony and whatever and i'm like i just feel like classical music has been trying to compensate, I think by putting itself on this pedestal for saying like, this is what musicality is. This is what- um, This is what complexity is. Complexity was exactly what I was gonna say. Yeah, complexity is. um, When in reality, complexity I feel like is is being able to, to understand and interpret different musical styles because what never occurs to people is that melodic, uh complexity and variation is not the only you know musical concept that you can that you can embody i mean a lot of times in rap music the most complex part of it is not is not the melody right there are rhythms uh, in rap music that y'all will spend months on the metronome trying to trying to get right, right and right. and still not advance That's so you know and you, you talk about diminishing other um, styles, you know, that that conversation is even bigger than race, I think. Uh, and that's why I've, you know, used the phrase so-called classical music so much, because even in using that phrase, classical music, there are a world of aesthetics that are classic to those cultures and those experiences that are being left out. So when you say I'm going to hear a classical music concert, you know, we don't bring to mind an African drum ensemble or even someone playing a, a Vina from South India or a Shamisen from uh, Japan or, or you know, whatever, a, a, mari, a mariachi ensemble from Mexico. You know, we aren't thinking about those things because we have been conditioned to really have that aesthetic of Western European orchestral music as the measure of what classical music is. So, you know, that, you know, so just to make clear to folks, you know, that's why, you know, that's, uh, uh, that's why that phrase classical music, you know, itself has to be the, uh, at the center of certain conversations. But look, we talk about uh, complexity. 
they will, you know, music history teachers, maybe even the music theory teachers will spend a whole class talking about four minutes and 33 seconds of silence of not, of no music. OK. And, and, and yet we're going to um, uh, diminish. Uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to wash my mouth here because I know y'all are students, <laughs> but we're but we're trying to diminish, you know, things like um, hip hop or or on a on a broader sense, um not affirm what we aesthetically define as jazz as equally, um, you know, a part of that tradition of that instrumental to, uh, uh, tradition. You know, you, you, you're talking about rhythms that uh, folks will spend weeks, you know, with on, on the metronome. And yet we have music that is this complex and that's colorful, that's being created in the moment when it comes to improvisation, you know, that we stick to um, uh, another um, uh, side of the building, another side of the conversation. So, yeah, just expanding, you know, what we understand about you know, our norms is just required all the way down to that phrase, um, classical music. You know, I'm um, the the episode, the opus of my podcast that came out today. The guest is a woman named Donna Walker Kuhn. She wrote a book on arts advocacy, arts equity called Invitation to the Party. And one of the things she talks about in that book and that she talked about in my interview is how all of this is a uh, forever change. It is a lasting thing. You know, when we talk about engaging new audiences or diversifying a student body at a conservatory those folks have to understand that you now have to forever nurture this new body of people this new reality this the uh the, the, these new communities that you're serving um that's that that's why there's so much doubt you know getting back to it an earlier point you were making that's why there's so much doubt and what these institutions are doing because the foreverness that the change requires isn't even there when it talks about how we foreground the conversation. We aren't even willing to have the conversation as intensely as we were seven or eight months ago, you know. So how can the upholding of that new reality be um, uh, be upheld with, with that same um, lack of energy? Um, James Baldwin once said, you know, um, he doesn't know that, you know, X, and I'm uh, paraphrasing, he doesn't know that a certain institution is racist, but he knows what the institution looks like, and he knows what that institution has been upholding. What does, what does the Eastman School of Music as an institution look like? What has it looked like for this past 100 years? And what does someone like me, or folks like me, folks like us, what do we think of that institution understanding those things, seeing the current reality, seeing the past, and um, and and is that going to make us attractive to you? You know, if not, you know, there are forever changes that need to be made to get you to that reality. Yeah, I mean, I mean, four thirty-three. When he said that, I was just like, wow. I mean, he really finessed. I mean, off. really, I mean, really think <laughs> about that. And I, yeah. I, I can get into my, you know, nerd bag and talk about that piece of music as improvisatory and how the actual music is what happens in that four and a half. I, I can do all of that. Right. At the same time, I can affirm that there are whole black women that wrote symphonies that y'all don't even know. And we're sitting here talking about four and a half minutes of silence. You know, that's where that anger and that fire comes from. That yeah. That's where that, that's where that frustration comes from. And that's what I have to, you know, 
set to the side again when we're talking about uh, taking this unique opportunity. So, you know, with that frustration, you know, that the, that that black folks have in the system, you know, we are still able to engage these conversations and really try to work toward a positive push despite you know, um, uh, respectability, you know, despite how folks might feel about it. So if we are able to do all that with all of the ancestral baggage we have and the receipts from today's classical music field, if we, if we can do all that, the institutions with all of their resources can certainly serve as that example as what we need to do to fully change. It's going to look different. I have to press that again. It's going to look different. It's going to feel weird. It might even feel unfair to some people. But in the spirit of equity, we have to understand that there's a lot of catch up to do before we can even begin to talk about or even consider equality because equitable practices haven't even gotten us to that stage yet. We're beginning to talk about equitable practices. We have a long way to go. And and it's great that you bring up that it will, you know, look different because um, what the first thing that a lot of people who feel like they're on board with this work um, try to do is they try to incorporate additive curriculum. Mm -hmm. They want to add stuff. And it's just like, you know, you need to transform this. You need to take things away and replace them with other things. Because, you know, to, to say, okay, well, you know, yeah, we're, we're, we're down with what you guys want to do. Yeah, but we, but we cannot lose any of what we already have. It's like you want to keep that in place because it makes you feel comfortable because you still hold on to that belief that this is something that we cannot do without while this entire time we've been doing without the music by Black people. Mm -hmm. You've thought of that as something that we can do without. Right. So it's like, I can do without Mozart. I can't, right. you know. Right. Period. Period. <laughs> No, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head right there. Again, when we talk about diminishing other styles, diminishing other bits of history, when you really sit down and take a look at what we have not even included, much less what we have not centered for so long and what we have, it's it's it, to me, it's it's plain to see you know, the changes that need to be made, you know, one of the in prepper, uh, in preparation for this interview, one of the first things that I wrote down is, you know, to not take for granted that some people still don't understand why we're having these conversations, you know, they still don't understand why it's a problem for um, you to have almost gone through a whole degree without having performed an orchestral piece of music by a black person. You know, people don't understand why that's a problem. So um, these conversations, you know, help inspire that thought in people. You know, my goal in the work that I do is to inspire um, uh, uh, enough thought, you know, get that critical mass of people to eventually um, nudge the folks in positions of power, either, you know, out of those positions or nudge them toward making uh, the more uh, uh, equitable uh, decisions for this change. It's a it's a forever change. And I think um, we have seen, you know, what institutions are willing to do it and what institutions are not willing to do it. Um, and then, you know, when you when you speak to, you know, uh, the music schools and, and whatever, whoever else talking about what you need, what has to be included, what has to be a part of it, we can't take this away. You know, I think about these riots from uh, this past summer, you know, in uh, Minneapolis, there are some people who thought that third precinct needed to be there. And there are some people who had a different idea. So what I say to the classical music institutions, are we going to do this the nice way? Or are we going to do this our way? Because I'm down for either one. I'm down for I'm down for every music school 
in the country to be closed if none of them are going to actually do this work. And that's, you know, you know, one of the bigger points as we, you know, get to the uh, end of the hour here, one of the bigger points that I um, try to make to these institutions when I collaborate with them, it isn't just, a, even though I believe we should be centered, it's not just about us. It's also about your survival in uh, in 30 years, in 100 years, you know, is your institution going to be relevant if, if uh, communities of color, um, uh, if more diverse communities are seeing the concert hall or seeing orchestral music as something that has nothing to do with them, who will be the students that you serve to send into those spaces? So this isn't just about us or just about doing the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing. It's about all of us coming together to make sure that this art form that we have fallen in love with survives. You know, I can um, I can sit here and and uh, trash, you know, Beethoven and Mozart all day, you know, but the fact is is there are times when I love, you know, listening or even performing the music of Beethoven, you know, playing Mozart opera was one of the, uh, the, the favorite things um, of the, one of my favorite parts of the profession of, 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 of playing, you know, for, for a living, you know, so it's not that we're diminishing that music um, as much as we're saying that we have to have more relevant programming, more equitable programming so that people can see what it has to do with them. You know, what Mozart and Beethoven have to do with me is my training, my understanding of theory, my understanding of how to play the bassoon, you know, but that isn't something that applies to, you know, the, the person on the street, you know, what a living composer or what the music of a black composer can mean for the person on the street might be more um, genuine. That connection might be there, um, not only there enough to get them into the concert hall, but you know, there enough to get them to really value, you know, what they experience. So, you know, we, we have to we have to think about you know all of those things and and really understand that while this is about doing the right thing and doing our part in fixing America's original sin, it's also about making sure that these institutions survive. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about the Met right now in uh, New York City. You know, think about the diversity that is New York City. Think about all of the different types of food, all of the restaurants, the weirdos you see on the uh, the train platform. You know, all th th think about just how colorful it is, and think about how an institution that has as much money as the Met who they have served in that diverse landscape, you know, how uncolorful that looks. They spent so long serving only a few people that when you have something like COVID come along, they're unable to serve anybody. They're closed right now, are they? More institutions have that future in front of them, including conservatories, if we don't take a serious look at how we can be more relevant and more impactful and more engaging to more people. That's going to look different. It's going to mean that Mozart and Beethoven have to get out of the way sometimes, but it's, it's, it's all in the name of survival, and it's all in the name of equity, and it's all in the name of, again, this art form that we have all fallen in love with. Mm -hmm. I mean that that despite its problems of, right <laughs> <laughs> the, the you know the part about uh, about relevancy is just so true because once I was you know they always teach you about like um different types of history they're always compartmentalized you know you have U.S. history I remember I took you know mm -hmm. state history in fifth grade and like you know so my music history and my U.S. history have been totally separate so like even though you you know these dates you don't really them together like these were happening at the same time right and so you know me my professors already know if I have the chance to 
do my own prompt, my own project, my own curriculum, it's going to be black. I don't care what type of mental gymnastics I have to do to fit in the time period, mm -hmm. it's going to be black. So when if when sitting in music history and realizing like, I'm sitting here learning what Mozart had for breakfast on his 17th birthday, and there was this, you know, whole um, slave trade happening at the same time, it's just like, this, it immediately became the most irrelevant thing to me. You know, like I just didn't care anymore. I mean, because... his, Mozart's Mozart's seventeenth birthday, so that would have been the seventeen seventies. You know, um, you know that's when um, you know you have the um, uh, the Revolutionary War going on. You know, mm -hmm. that's when you have black musicians who have participated um, in in that and and wrote music that we don't know about or that we aren't uh, learning about. Hell, the the first person shot in the uh, Revolutionary War was a black man. You know, and half of of us don't even learn that much you know so think so think about every think about the depth of everything else that is not there and how and how that can serve you know everybody living here you know really diving into um you know i'm glad you brought that up because really diving into what it means to understand not only the music that played a role uh, in the revolutionary war and and american so-called independence you know um you know that that doesn't just serve black folks that serves all americans and that gives us all a clearer picture of what the history of all of this is so when we really understand again the black history of america and 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 really understand how it's been intentionally pushed to the side how could we how could could we keep things the same when we talk about our conservatories? You know, how could we? I, I was um, I, I, I'm thinking about Blind Tom Wiggins right now. You know, a, mm -hmm. a musician and composer uh, who was um, uh, a slave. Um, he, uh, we, we talk about him uh, on the latest opus of Triloquy. But you know, I, I think about folks like him and all of those fiddlers and pianists and 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 folks who you know we will never learn about in music school because as you say we have to learn what Mozart had for breakfast when he was 17 you know <laughs> so um that that's what we're talking about when we when we say push certain things to the side it's not that there is not value in Mozart there is just a history here that is that pertains directly to us that you know, has not been explored. Um, you know, what I'm thinking about, uh, again, you know, complete system change and things looking different. Let's say, you know, the COVID vaccine comes out and everybody's local orchestra is back. They come back with Beethoven 5. I'm sure that will sell out because a lot of people know it in X, Y, and Z. What if they came back with the premiere of, you know, the Beyonce symphony? First of all, you're, you, won't, you, you won't be able to keep folks away from the building much less you know so you will have a different type of problem with selling out the tickets you'll have a different type of audience and you'll have an audience of people who sees what that institution can do for you know them as a person so you know that's the that's the lofty sort of um hyperbolic example you know featuring Beyonce or the music of Beyonce okay so now let's say you know in, in a more realistic way we have really taken the time in music school in our music history classes in our American history classes to talk about the black folks who made this country including the black musicians the black composers all those folks you know I'm working toward we're working toward a reality when that 
the music by those folks will fill the concert hall because it's familiar, A, and B, it actually has something to do with us. You know, if, if um, I, I know that there are going to be a lot of um, symphonies when they come back uh, playing the music of Florence Price because that's the name that everyone is saying. You know, what if her name were as normal as Bernstein and Copeland's, you know, what if little black girls growing up really had that mental example of a black woman being a composer, when you think about a composer, and when you spread that culture out, what could it mean for um, institutions programming her music? What could it mean for the schools and the conservatories really foregrounding that sort of music when we talk about music theory and music history and the excerpts we learn and, and the sonatas we bring to juries or whatever, you know? What could it mean? It could mean a different world, a landscape that matters to more people and a classical music field that um, looks different than, than it you know ever has been. but it's going to take a lot of bravery and a lot of courage along the way. Right now, the conversations of it are uncomfortable for so many people. So the actions behind it are, are, are even further behind. But I think we can get there. I think we can get there if we persevere and we, uh, and we, and we keep on keeping on. But we just have to be unapologetic and really frank about um, the, the, uh, the, how can I say, the traditions and the norms that have been upheld by classical music. As I mentioned before, even in the way that we uh, use the phrase classical music. And, and recognizing when, uh, when you know, those things have been normalized, because I remember in a, in a discussion, you know, we were talking in music history about, about why we still adhere to the canon. And someone was like, because it helps us remember our history. And I said, mm -hmm. not my history, right, yeah, and whose history. And really not your <laughs> history either is what I would tell the white people, you know, not yours either. Because as again, as I just got done talking about your history as an American is um, uh, consuming and being enriched by musical tradition rooted in blackness so when you know even even beyond um and, and and let me just make this clear just in case you know folks don't know or won't get it so when we talk about orchestral music in america we're talking about an import we're talking about something that was not born here something that came across the ocean from europe and sort of set root here when i say that um american music is black music with the exception of what the indigenous people codified what i'm saying is that when you have those negro spirituals from the plantations and the other black things that that grew from that you have something that is is uniquely American. You have something that you cannot attribute to any other country, to any other culture, in the same way that uh, we can attribute orchestral music to Europe. So, be, so with that being the foundation of, uh, of American music, you know, you have to tie rock and roll, bluegrass, obviously jazz and hip hop and rap. You have to tie those things into it. But you also have to tie into it the classical tradition because the American composers that um, were, were born, you know, from that tradition um, have have hints, have glimpses of that experience in their music just because they were born here. You know, you cannot talk about, um, you know, you can't talk about Austria for very long without talking about Mozart because in their musical traditions in, in a, you know, in a more contemporary way, you know, that is foundational. You know, you can't go to Italy and talk about opera without talking about Verdi. You know, that is just what it is. 
The reality is you should not be able to be in the United States and not talk about black music. But that is what um, classical institutions have upheld, you know, for uh, for these generations. So I just wanted to, you know, make that point, make sure that's that that's uh, clear for for people. You know, we're trying to equitably repaint the picture and help folks understand that what is foundational to all of this, you know, is black. And if we shift the if, if we turn the page and shift the car a little bit to, to really see that, we'll see all of the many things we have to change within the systems, you know, from the conservatories to the professional orchestras, all the way down to those beginning band rooms. You know, when you open up that uh, instrument case for the first time, what is the first tune you learned to play? Was it something that was culturally relevant or even historically relevant to the United States? Or was it some European folk song or something that has nothing to do with your experience as a person? It's, I'm sure my mom was very excited the first time I could go home and uh, play Go Tell Aunt Rhody on my bassoon. How more excited would she have been if I could play Wade in the in the Water or goodness forbid Sir Duke by Stevie Wonder or you know so you know it's it, it's everywhere the changes we need to make are are, are everywhere um, what every individual what every institution needs to understand is uh, certainly in classical music is that you have a role you have you have had a role in maintaining these systems and you have a very specific role in changing them it can't happen um, without you and if it has to happen without you um, everything else is going to happen without you as well including you know uh, survival well thank you so much Garrett for joining me um, can you let the people know where they can find you Yes. Yeah, so um, I'm all over the Internet for good or for bad. Uh, <laughs> uh, just Garrett McQueen. GarrettMcQueen.com is my website. You can learn more uh, about my um, podcast, uh, Triloquy at Triloquy.org, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. Um, and for all of my other work um, and uh, collaborations, including those um, with the Gateways Music Festival, you know, shout out to them, um, a, a very important uh, Rochester and, and Eastman adjacent institution, you know, so the work I do with them, uh, with Sphinx, with various radio stations, you can just learn more about that um, on my website again, GarrettMcQueen.com. Special thanks to Delaney Harris and Garrett McQueen for donating their time and talents to this episode. Um, I will try to put together an episode of some of the conversation that the three of us had after the interview ended and release that at a future date. So stay tuned for that. We've included links to Garrett's website and podcast in the show notes. Do check those out. And we'll also once again include a link to the Classically Black podcast so you can hear more of Delaney. The episode was mixed by Francis Inzenhofer, intro music was by me, and the outro was composed by Alexis Silverman. Please be sure to follow us on SoundCloud or on the IML Facebook page to find out about new episodes. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, please send me an email. You can find that in the show notes as well. Go out, make art, do good work. From the IML, I'm Stephen Vigner. Until next time. Mm-hmm.